So one thing that bothers me about this is that I'm doing it in English. I usually end up incorporating a lot of Urdu into my lectures or straight up lecturing in Urdu. And I think it would be great if I knew any of the regional languages with any particular adeptness. I would love to be lecturing in Pashto or Sindhi or Balochi or Punjabi for that matter. And I think that would be a good thing. Now the issue and the reason I think it's a tragedy that we do so much in English is that it is basically a language of elites in Pakistan. Certainly it can help in certain instances where people may not be comfortable with Urdu, so they'd rather learn English. I think that's cool. However, we should recognize that English is this kind of language of administration and government because it's the colonial language. It is a language of our colonizers, the British. Now, we've spoken about British colonialism with Dr. Imran Ali, and we compared it to Portuguese colonialism in Mozambique, thanks to Dr. Bridget O'Loughlin. There's a kind of view in Pakistan and outside of it, certainly in Britain, that British colonialism was a good thing. It was good for Pakistan, it was good for India, it was good for the people of the world, that the sun never set on the British Empire. This comes up in a lot of different ways. I've often had students think that we in South Asia didn't have much going on before the British came and gave us railroads and irrigation, you know, commerce and how to use forks and how to eat, or we didn't know what to do with our hands before the British taught us all of that. I mean, I might be exaggerating a bit, but there are plenty of people who think things were so much better when the British were around. And you can even think of some of that colonial hangover when in 2019, the British prince and princess Kate and Harry came, Kate and Harry, Harry and Kate, whatever, they came to Pakistan and we basically shut down the country for them. Now, okay, there's some validity to saying, look, we need to present an image of Pakistan as safe and secure to the world. But to do that by spending millions on the security of the royalty that we kicked out 70 years ago strikes me as something ironic. And there's a reason we kicked them out, or at least the people of this uh, South Asia kicked them out. And it's because it wasn't necessarily a great thing to be under British colonialism. I think it's dangerous to venerate and valorize or uh, big up British colonialism. We started to see that in our discussion with Dr. Imran Ali. The, the British were not here to do us favors. They were here to rule over us. They reshaped the landscape of Punjab with the irrigation canals. They did that by displacing the original people of these lands, by subjugating them, by giving favors to landed elites. And these landlords, in many ways, continue to hold power in Pakistan. And also a lot of the stuff that was being produced here, a lot of the wheat, wheat, for a long time, that was being exported to Britain. Now, couldn't they feed themselves? Why was so much of our land being turned away from domestic consumption over to the consumption needs of people in a faraway land? Well, you might say, is that a bad thing? After all, if you're exporting stuff, then you're probably getting something back in return. But not necessarily. There's little doubt that colonizers extracted wealth from colonies. It's what early scholars of colonial political economy called the drain, because, you know, they were draining stuff out. Or they also talk about it in terms of the transfer or an unrequited transfer. Now, if you know anything about unrequited love, and I'm guessing most of you do, that is where you have feelings for somebody else, but they don't have feelings for you. And in love as in the exchange of wealth between different nations, 
unrequited is not a good thing. It's not necessarily a good thing. And by the way, if somebody doesn't have feelings for you, you should move on. Don't obsess. The thing is, was this unrequited transfer really that serious? Was the drain really that big? Many people tend to underestimate it. What role did it play in the industrialization of Britain and other British settler colonies? Did the extracted wealth go and help them industrialize? Maybe. Is it possible that this colonial extraction got in the way of our catching up with European countries who developed capitalism or modern economic growth or whatever, as far as the Great Divergence is concerned? Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we talk about the relationship between politics and economics and how political economy can mean a lot more than just politics and economics. We talk to scholars using different perspectives and different approaches to get at some of these questions. I'm your host, Noman Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To discuss this picture of the unrequited transfer known as the drain, and to discuss much more, we're pretty lucky to be joined by Dr. Utsa Patnaik, who is Professor Emerita at the Jawaharlal Nehru University, or JNU, in India. Dr. Patnaik has a very long career and distinguished career in agrarian studies and colonial economic history. Her most recent work on the drain was published in the book Agrarian and Other Histories, Essays for Binay Bhushan Chaudhary, which she co-edited with Shubhra Chakrabarti. The question of colonial exploitation also comes up, very importantly, in another recent book, A Theory of Imperialism, which she co-authored with her spouse, Prabhat Patnaik. Hashtag couple goals. Now, this is a two-part interview. The first part focuses on colonial political economy, and the second will focus on the continuities in post-colonial South Asia, especially what's gone down over the last 30 years uh, with market-oriented and free trade neoliberal reforms. And as Dr. Patnaik argues, the continuities are pretty interesting. So let's hear from Dr. Patnaik. I've been uh, researching economics for like since I was... um... Uh, since I joined the economics program at the Delhi School of Economics in 1965. So that's a long time ago. I think I got motivated to do economics rather than any other subject because um, when I was a teenager, uh, we had a lot of Marxist uh, literature at home. My father was an engineer, but he was interested in Marxism. So I had very easy access to uh, all the Marxist classics. And um, I started reading them uh, during the summer holidays, uh, hot uh, summer uh, afternoons. Uh, Quite a lot of it I didn't understand because I was only a teenager at that time. But um, I picked up later on with the same literature. And uh, even though my first interest was uh, literature, really English literature, And I also enjoyed reading my own language, Bengali. I thought it was important to learn economics after I read the Marxist literature. A lot of your work has looked at the relationship between the metropole, which means the colonizer, and colonial society, and particularly colonial political economy. Now, we've touched on how colonization changed class relations, but we haven't necessarily touched on what was kind of the essence of the relationship between uh, colonialism and the colonized. And 
you talk about the drain, you talk about how there was a certain form of colonial plunder, but most people don't maybe accept that view. Can you tell us about the research that you've done about this? Yes, well, I don't use the term colonial plunder because even though there was plunder in the colonies of conquest, and we have to make a distinction between the colonies of settlement where Europeans went and settled, which had started off also as colonies for example, North America and so on, uh, South Africa, Australia. We have to make a distinction between those colonies, which soon became independent, and the colonies of conquest, uh, which is the Indian subcontinent, large areas of Africa, Southeast Asia, and so on. So, um, no, uh, plunder certainly took place. But uh, what was happening was far more systematic than plunder. What people don't understand when they talk about colonial exploitation is that, well, they're usually focusing, you know, if you look at the literature, they're focusing on extraction of um, super profits by exploiting cheap colonial labor. And that is also the focus now when they're talking about global value chains and so on, that you are uh, engaging in super exploitation, extracting uh, super profits from uh, workers paid wages. But you see, whether in the past or today, the wage-paid section of labor, the organized labor, which is uh, paid wages, is a very tiny fraction of the total labor force. In colonial India, for example, and we are talking, when we are talking about India, we are talking about the entire subcontinent, that is present-day India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, and so on. And British India, of course, also included Burma, and it also included Afghanistan. Burma was separated only in 1935. So when we look at this entire subcontinent, we see that even at the height of industrial growth in the interwar period and during the Second War, the uh, wage-paid labor force in factories was hardly 1% of the total labor force. So if the colonizers were simply extracting super profits, they wouldn't get much, okay? What they were actually extracting was something different, which has not been properly analyzed, uh, even though there's been a very large literature on the drain of wealth from India, which started with the pioneering work of Dada Bhai Naoroji and Ramesh Chandra Dutt, highly talented and insightful writings by them. And there's been an enormous literature on India on the drain of wealth, but still the analytical essence of what the drain actually was uh, is missing from most of the discussion, even up to the present. What people do is to take the export surplus from India as the measure of the drain of wealth. But they don't explain why the export surplus measures the drain of wealth. Okay, And that is why it does not figure anywhere in the northern literature relating to imperialism at all. I mean, people are not clear about why when it's supposed to be a good thing for countries to have an export surplus. And if India did have a huge export surplus, which it did, why should it be a bad thing? And why should it be a measure of drain from India? Now, the answer to that, when it's explained, is very simple. But it takes a lot of research to find the answer. And it's a good idea to begin with an earlier, simpler system which prevailed during the rule of the East India Company, uh, which the East India Company, of course, had got the monopoly of trade with the East, that is South Asia, as well as China, as far back as 1600. But it only got 
the sovereign right of ruling over India when it obtained the right of tax collection in 1765 from the Mughal emperor after the Battle of uh, Baksar, uh, which was preceded by the Battle of Plassey. So we start from that point and you look at what the drain meant, actually meant. Well, it was very simple. They used the budgetary revenues that they collected in a very different way from the way it had ever been used in the past by previous rulers. They used a substantial part of these revenues simply to buy export goods in which they had been trading. So what did this mean? This meant that earlier, if the company had to buy, let us say, a hundred pound worth of goods, it would have to pay a thousand rupees because the exchange rate was 10 rupees to one pound. It would have to pay out a thousand rupees to buy those goods. And then it would transport them and sell it at a profit. It was operating like any other trader. But once it got the right of revenue collection, its own outlay in purchasing the goods became zero. Because what it then did was to use a large part of the revenue, supposing it was collecting 300 pounds of revenues every year from Bengal, where it started ruling. Later on, it extended its rule to, the, uh, to about 80% of the territory of India. But supposing it collected 100 pounds of revenue, it simply took one third of that, uh, roughly, let's say 30 pounds of that, and bought commodities with it. So as a trader, its profits became enormous because it no longer had to make any outlays at all on purchasing the goods. Outlays were out of the locally collected revenues. And what is more, when these goods were transported to uh, Britain, it meant an enormous advantage for Britain, which had a trade deficit with India. It was importing far more from India than it was exporting to India. And normally a trade deficit would have to be paid for, you see in the international accounts, it would have to be paid for either by export of species, that is precious metals, or by borrowing from the country to which you're indebted or a combination of the two. But once this tax financed um, export started, Britain no longer had to pay anything at all for its import surplus, its trade deficit vis-a-vis -vis India. Because the Indian producers had been so-called paid for already Actually, they were not paid at all because a part of their own taxes were the taxes collected from the very same producers were being used to purchase their goods. So this is the analytical sense of the drain. And you do not find a mention of this anywhere at all in the northern literature. Even the well-meaning people who are talking about imperialism are completely unaware of this particular mechanism. And this mechanism meant that not just 1% of the population who were wage paid in factories or plantations where Europeans had invested, not just 1% was being exploited. The entire working population was being exploited because the taxes were primarily collected from them in the form of land revenue and taxes on necessities like salt and the opium monopoly also yielded a lot of revenue. So the very people who were paying the taxes, uh, those were the people who were producing the goods which were being bought by their own taxes. So in effect, they were not being paid at all, but they thought they were being paid because there was a market transaction. You see, they got money, but they didn't realize that that money was coming out of their own taxes. So this is the mechanism, and it was operated 
for the best part of 200 years by Britain, not only in the Indian subcontinent, but in possibly in every other colony, like a big colony like Malaya and so on. It was operated by the Dutch in Java. It was operated by other colonizers, European colonizers uh, in other countries as well. So this is a kind of continent which is opening up for research because none of the intellectuals of these ex-colonized countries have ever looked at how their budgetary resources during the colonial period was being actually used. Okay, so there's a huge amount of research left to be done. My own uh, estimates of the drain are drawn from varying sources for the period 1765 to 1836. I use the British trade data, because the Indian data at that time were not being systematically recorded, but the British data were. So whatever was coming from uh, Asia into Britain, which was tax financed, uh, we can take as a measure of the drain. Then from 1836 onwards, you get the statistical abstracts for India, which are compiled within India, which give you all the statistics. And the trade statistics are particularly reliable because it was so important for the colonizers. So I use that from 1836 onwards up to 1938. So my estimates cover this entire period from 1765 to 1938. At the time it was taking place in the early years, already there were some sympathetic British observers, uh, for example, Montgomery Martin, who gave evidence to a select committee in 1842, set up by British Parliament, and uh, in 1838, he published his own book, and uh, he had calculated the drain by taking the, mm, this import deficit of Britain vis-a-vis -vis India, or India's export surplus vis-a-vis -vis Britain at that time, and he had compounded it at a 12% rate of interest because he said that was the prevalent rate of interest uh, in India at that time. Now, I don't do that. I take a much lower rate of interest, 5% rate of interest, to compound the drain which is measured by the export surplus vis-a-vis -vis Britain up to the 1840s and then vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world after the 1840s. And I'll explain why it becomes vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world after the 1840s in a moment. And the sum I received, the compounded value of the drain from 1765 when this tax collection started immediately after the acquisition of the Diwani of Bengal by Clive from the Mughal Emperor in 1765, right up to 1938, the cumulative value of the drain amounted to almost 40 times Britain's 1947 GDP. And it amounted to almost 80 times India's GDP at the time of independence. So the values we are talking about are really enormous. And if we take a more realistic rate of interest, of course, it would be even larger. Wow. So what, what would be the figure that uh, it may be in today's terms? We don't know because we can't, uh, we are not adjusting for inflation or anything like that. We are just taking for the time being a great underestimate because we are simply taking whatever the values were current. When I say current values, these mean values at the prices prevalent for each year that we have the figure for. All right, and then we're simply bringing it forward at a 5% rate of interest. So I haven't even tried to do a kind of price adjustment because what you get, even without doing any kind of price adjustment is mind boggling. You get to figures which you can hardly comprehend. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, 40 times Britain's GDP in 1947 and 80 times India's GDP at the time of independence, that that is for sure, it's mind-boggling. Uh, now, one thing that you've described is how the mechanism of the drain changed after 1857. Until 1857 or around that time, India was ruled directly by the East India Company. It wasn't even the British government that ruled India. But in 1857, there was a rebellion, the Great Rebellion of 1857, in which many places in northern India, the people revolted against British colonialism and or East India Company, rather. And part one of the consequences of that was that the British government took over direct rule of India. But then that changed the, the ways in which the drain happened. By that time, what had happened is that the Industrial Revolution in England had fructified. And earlier, the British were importing textiles from India, as you know, and they were re-exporting them to many destinations, mainly the Caribbean and the uh, European continent. They were not consuming our textiles within Britain because there was a ban on consumption of pure cotton goods. But once the, you know, the uh, technical innovations and they took seven or eight decades to perf to perfect the new spinning jenny, the water frame, and so on. Once they were ready by the 1870s, then the ban on import of pure cotton of the uh, of the consumption of pure cotton goods was lifted in Britain, but very high tariffs were placed against the entry of Asian textiles. So Britain basically, and these tariffs did not go till 1846. So Britain basically practiced mercantilist, you can explain to your students what mercantilist means. I don't think I'll have time to go into what exactly mercantilist policies mean. Sure, except sure. that they mean that you are excluding competition from other countries. That even though they're, public, uh, they're producing goods much more cheaply than you are, you're making sure those goods don't come into your country until you are ready to produce those same goods using your own resources. So there was discrimination against Asian textiles and also Persian textiles from 1700 until 1846. They were simply not allowed to enter the British market. But the East India Company kept importing these textiles anyway, but they imported these textiles to re-export to the European continent because they were getting these goods free. They were tax financed, as I've just explained. And against re-export of these goods, they then got commodities that they needed from the European uh, continent, like corn, bar iron, pitch tar, naval goods, and so on. So they got these free goods from us. From their point of view, it was completely free. It was a transfer. Uh, transfer is another word for the dream. And they could not only use these goods in their own country, but they could re-export them to buy commodities from other countries. Okay. Now, the things became a little more complicated after the governance of India passed to the British government directly after the Great Rebellion of 1857-59. Because by that time, since uh, the British industry had uh, managed to reduce the cost of production of pure cotton goods, and it had actually ousted Indian textiles from its markets in continental Europe, it then wanted to invade the Indian subcontinent itself with its machine-made yarn and its machine-made cloth. And the monopoly of the East India Company was not conducive to that. So they wanted an end to that monopoly. 
And from that point on, from the 1830s on actually, uh, Indian goods started going more and more, not through the company, but directly to various destinations all over the world. Now, the mechanism that the British government developed was very simple and effective to make sure that all the gold and foreign exchange that Indian export surpluses earned from all over the world, not a penny of it came back to the Indian producers who had earned it. And how did they do that? Well, once it's explained, it's very simple to understand. But for some reason, we do not find an explanation in our literature to this day, a clear explanation. A particular minister of the British government with cabinet rank was designated as the Secretary of State for India in Council. And this minister invited all foreign importers of Indian goods. These foreign importers could be uh, German or French or American or Japanese, wherever they were, all over the world. They were importing Indian goods. He invited them to deposit their payment for the, these goods in sterling, in gold, and in their own currencies with him in London. All right. He actually uh, operated the India office, which was located in London. So all the foreign exchange earnings came to him, and in exchange, he issued an equivalent bill of exchange, a rupee bill of exchange, which was cashable only in India. So if you were an American importer of Indian goods or a Dutch or um, a French importer, whatever, uh, you had to pay the Indian exporter, then you gave your payment in terms of sterling or gold uh, to the Secretary of State for India in London. And you were issued a bill to an equivalent rupee amount. If you bought a thousand pound sterling worth of goods, you were given a bill for 10,000 rupees, which you then sent to the exporter in India. And that exporter deposited that bill through the exchange banks. And his bill was honored out of the budget. That is that 10,000 rupees came out of budgetary resources which had been earmarked, about one third of budgetary resources was set aside and called by the colonial government itself, it was called expenditure in England or expenditure abroad. They used the two terms interchangeably. So that was being paid out of budgetary resources and the exporter in turn kept, let us say, a quite a hefty margin, let's say 20% of that 10,000 rupees and paid the balance to the producers in India from whom he had sourced those goods, bought those goods for export. Okay, so exactly the same thing was uh, going on through the mechanism, a little roundabout mechanism of a bill of exchange. And this bill of exchange mechanism started from 1861 and it went right on until Indian independence virtually. Okay, but somehow the simple mechanism of a bill of exchange in which all the foreign exchange uh, earnings from the territories which were colonized then, which comprised present-day India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and so on, all the foreign exchange earnings, can you imagine, from the global export surplus was going straight into the British government's account. It was preempted. Not a penny was allowed to reach India. What the Indian producers got, they were actually being cheated out of their earnings they appeared to be paid because they got a rupee, uh, rupees for their exports. But these report, uh, rupees continued to come out of the Indian budget and the budgetary 
revenues were raised from the same producers. They were the ones who had to pay the taxes. So they were being paid out of their own taxes. So in effect, they were not being paid at all. Um, the market mechanism is an amazing thing. It can really hide real relations of exploitation very effectively. Now, Karl Marx talked about one way in which market relationships hit the real relationship between the capitalist and his the wage-paid worker, because the wage-paid worker appeared to be paid the full equivalent for the labor that he was selling to the capitalist. But Karl Marx pointed out that actually he was being paid only for part of his labor time. So if he got a daily wage, then that wage recompensed him only for his necessary labor, that is that part of the labor day, which was required for meeting his own daily subsistence needs. But the remaining part of the labor day was appropriated by the capitalist. But it appeared to be an equivalent exchange, but it was not an equivalent exchange. There was an extraction of surplus in the form of profit. That is the cash equivalent of the surplus labor was profit which the capitalist got. But this particular mechanism I'm talking about is something which is in addition to this and completely independent of this. That is the mechanism of colonial exploitation was that unlike any sovereign country in the world, you will not find a single sovereign country, whether in history or at present, which uses any part of budgetary resources raised from the producers, from the ordinary mass of the people, no part of these taxation revenues or other revenues which are collected from the people is ever used for buying export goods. So this is a very abnormal use of budgetary funds, and it effectively means that the producers were not being paid at all. It was a very simple mechanism. But the market exchange, the fact that the producer got rupees, the fact that he did not know that these rupees were coming out of his own taxes, meant that he did not suspect that he was being cheated out of his earnings. Even if he did not suspect, at least the economists should have understood it. But the problem again is that economists are taught open economy macroeconomics relating to trade and investment relations between sovereign countries alone. There is no textbook which ever discusses the nature of the colonial relationship because the colonial macroeconomic relationship of trade and investment is completely different. You're not talking about two equal partners who are engaging in trade and investment. You're talking about a situation, very abnormal situation, where one country actually has control over the taxation revenues of another country. Now this you do not find. And this particular relationship is not discussed in any macroeconomics textbook whatsoever. So what we're talking about is the need to actually, you know, for students of economics, to get their heads around this phenomenon, which they have to understand, needs a modification of the normal macroeconomic relationships that they read about in the textbooks. Okay, and think what we could have done if we had, uh, if only a part of those foreign exchange earnings had been left with us. Um, the British talk about the fact that they built railways in India. They say that well, we built the railways for you. You know, between 1865 and the end of the 1870s, those 15 years, 
India earned in excess of 150 million pounds in commodity export surplus from the world because there was a huge cotton export boom at that time. Uh, the United States was undergoing a civil war and cotton supplies, the raw cotton supplies from, uh, from the southern states of the US to British factories had stopped. So Britain turned to other sources, including India, a huge raw cotton export boom, 150 million pounds in the, over those uh, 15 years. And the total railway plus irrigation investment that India had to make by borrowing on the British money market was only 26 million pounds. We were forced to borrow because all of our, our huge export surplus earnings was taken by Britain completely. And if only 26 million pounds out of that 150 million pounds had been left with us, we need not have borrowed at all. And we need not have incurred increasing debt as we were made to do. And this was not the only item of debt. Every important colonial war of expansion and conquest outside Indian borders was charged partly or mainly to the Indian revenues, culminating in even during the Second World War the huge cost of financing the allied military expenditures in South Africa was put on the Indian revenues, resulting in a, a massive famine which claimed 3 million civilian lives. So this entire uh, you know, mechanism of exploitation is something which is not clearly specified anywhere in the literature. Our pioneers were extremely insightful. They talked about unrequited export surplus, and they were absolutely right from India. Some of the early British administrators, like George Wingate, also said that the worst part of our rule is that uh, so much of the taxation revenues are not spent in the normal manner within the country. But you know, the, you have to spell out the actual macroeconomics. How did it actually work? And that was never spelled out clearly. And that was the problem why you did not really have any a serious addressing of the question of uh, what transfers or drain meant by any even progressive economists in northern universities. And even our own economists were not terribly clear about what the exact mechanism was. This whole mechanism of the bill of exchange that I'm talking about is something which has been discussed by a couple of economists only over the last 20 years. Surprising, but it is true. That is the financial mechanism was simple, but it has not been explicated clearly in the literature. So I am hoping that the book that um, we jointly authored, my spouse and myself, A Theory of Imperialism, and the book that we are writing in great, which is about to come out in uh, early next year from Monthly Review Press, Capital and Imperialism, those, try, those books try to explicate this mechanism of the trade and to explain why it is not colonial super profits through exploitation of cheap labor, wage labor. Yeah, that was, of course, true. It was there. But it was a small part of the enormous amount of resources that were extracted from the colonies. So I think that's, a, that's quite an incredible thing because I think most people in Pakistan also have no idea uh, even the kind of um, underspecified drain theory that you're talking about is not understood in Pakistan, never mind the completely or the more uh, fully fleshed out theory that you've given us. Yeah. So that's really important. 
Another dimension that I, I wanted to ask was about the diversion of land use. Like they uh, turned all of this land towards export crops or, or cash crops. So why did they want these export cash crops and, and what was that about? Why was it worthwhile for these uh, handful of West European maritime countries, you know, starting with Spain and Portugal, going on to France, Netherlands, uh, Britain, just a handful of West, West European maritime countries, why was it worthwhile for them to undertake the rigors those days of a very long sea journey? You know, if you had to come from Britain to India around the Cape of Good Hope, and the Suez Canal was only opened in 1869, you had to travel more than 12,000 nautical miles. It was quite a dangerous journey, and you came to a country where which where you could come down with a tropical disease. It was by no means without hazard. And yet they found it worthwhile to come all the way. What is it that they wanted from these tropical countries? What is it that they did not have, which they wanted so badly, that it made it worthwhile to come all the way to trade? They wanted the goods that they could never produce and still cannot ever produce, owing to their climate. You know, the today's advanced industrial countries, including Japan, are all located either in the cold-temperate zone or in areas bordering the cold and warm-temperate zones. They have only one growing season in the year. For most of the year, the ground is frozen or is actually under snow. It can't grow anything at all. Only one crop in a year. That is what we talk about in our book. And this material reality is something, again, you do not find in the literature at all. In fact, the northern literature, whether deliberately or not, obfuscates this reality. Because if you look at Ricardo's theory of comparative advantage, it is based on the assumption, uh, his model is based on the assumption that both the countries that he's considering, each of which produces two goods, both countries can produce both goods. In fact, he implicitly assumed all countries can produce all goods. It's simply not true. The cold temperate countries where today's industrial countries are located, nations are located, cannot ever produce tropical goods, number one. Number two, they cannot ever produce their own primary goods, which they can produce in summer, they cannot produce in winter. So there's huge seasonality of supply. And the standard of living was extremely low because they had neither access to a good diversified food basket, nor did they have access to fibers other than wool for clothing. They did not have access to fibers like raw cotton because they could not grow it. The United States can grow raw cotton, but only in a very limited area in its far south. And it is, meets only a tiny fraction of its own demand. So they could not grow the tropical crops at all, of course, a huge range of crops, and they could not even grow their own crops in their winter season. So there was a very strong material incentive for them to try and get these goods, primary commodities in particular. And of course, trade with India started when, it's, when the East India Company started. What they imported was manufactured goods, textiles, because the Mm, pure cotton textiles, which were printed uh, with vegetable dyes, found a very ready acceptance throughout the northern world. 
uh, where the summers can get quite hot, actually, and it's not very comfortable wearing wool next to your skin. So that is what they, they traded in our manufactured goods. But over time, then, these manufactured goods, they could import substitute on the basis of uh, the raw materials which they obtained free from us by using taxes collected, as I've explained, and this substituted for these textile goods by their own production. But the other commodities they could not substitute for, the raw materials and the other food crops. Okay, So they had a very strong incentive. And that is a motive which continues to this day. So I would say that our theory of imperialism introduces what we call this global asymmetry of production capacities. Actually, the northern literature has always not only ignored, it has obfuscated and it has in, uh, told you the reverse of what is true. You are continuously being told in the global south that you are poor, you are backward, you are food race dependent, but you are never told that actually you are extremely rich in resources, much richer in primary resources, much, much richer than the temperate lands are, much richer than the United States or uh, Europe or Japan. And I have given, uh, I constructed a table which is there in our book on theories of imperialism from the latest FAO data, Food and Agriculture Organization data of the United Nations, which compares the land productivity of just three countries, but it will hold good also if you take other countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Southeast Asian countries, Vietnam and so on, Egypt. I've compared the land productivity, that is the output per hectare of all crops grown over the year in China, the United States, and India. And we find that China has, and this is in terms of physical output, physical tonnage, not in value terms, because value raises its own problems of our commodities being underpaid in northern markets, you know, which owing to continuous devaluation of our currencies and so on. So we find that India produced 52% more than the US does in terms of yield per unit of area. Why? Because we can produce two crops. We can produce in some areas more than two over the entire year. Whereas the US, even though it has the largest area in the world, it's the most technologically advanced uh, agriculture, uh, enormous capitalization of agriculture can produce only one crop in the entire year. So no amount of technological change under capitalism has overcome this basic problem of a single crop in the year. Okay, uh, If you sow wheat in the US, what they call winter wheat, if you sow it in September or October, it will mature next July. Nine months. All right, And even if you sow wheat at the beginning of the uh, summer season, spring season, uh, in April, May, in the United States or in Europe, it will mature only in October. And after October, the cold season sets in. Uh, by now, in November, it's really cold and nothing will grow. You cannot grow anything all over the all through the six or seven uh, winter months. So you can imagine how poor in primary resources these these regions actually are. And in reality, for centuries, they have been dependent on trade with us, but a very special kind of trade. A trade in which 
countries like China, India, Southeast Asia, uh, tropical African countries did not require anything from these countries in the North at all. We, we are not desperate to, uh, you know, uh, uh, to import maple syrup. Uh, so desperate that we send ships halfway across the world to trade with them, not at all. We are self-sufficient and we are self-sufficient amongst ourselves. That is, if a country is too small to, be, to produce enough food grains, it can import from food grains surplus countries within the tropical region itself. It does not need to go to the uh, advanced countries. So that is why you find, for example, uh, when George III sent an embassy to the Chinese emperor, uh, what was his name? Qianglong. Yeah. Uh, Qianglong wrote this famous letter to George III saying that your uh, traders want a trading post, want to settle in China, because you cannot do without our silk and porcelain and tea. But the celestial kingdom has everything it needs within its own borders. We don't need anything from it. So we don't need to import anything. That was also true of India. And because they had to part with silver, because Britain had to part with silver and its trade with China and its trade with India, it desperately wanted a method by which it could pay without having to part with silver, without bullion outflow from Britain. And it got that method through political control because then it got the taxation revenues. And it could use, as I've said, a part of those revenues that did not have, have any silver outflow at all. It then used India to grow opium. It forced opium on China because China was still a sovereign country. You know, it was not fully colonized. But it was made to, through the opium wars, it was forced to consume opium, the Chinese population. Opium wars took place in the 1840s and there were two rounds, 1840s, 1850s. Indian opium was forced on China. And what the Chinese paid in terms of silver currency, China also had a silver currency like India had. In rupees, they had the tail. That silver currency was then used to pay for Britain's deficit on its trade with China. So they used all kinds of or methods, which are not complicated once you understand it, once you understand the motive behind it, and once you understand why these are the only traders in the world. Trade had been going on for centuries. We were trading with Java, with Africa, and so on, long before the British came. But it was not trade at gunpoint. The only people who started trade at gunpoint were people from the maritime nations of Europe and later on, North America. So you have to ask yourself the question, why? And this is the answer we try to give, this asymmetry of production capacities. And which meant that uh, in India, for example, you have all the data for the 50 years before independence, because the census of India started in 1881. And the census recorded not only population, it also recorded economic data you have a very clear picture emerging of a continuous fall in the food grain availability. First of all, food grain production per head of population fell because more and more land was going into the non-food export crops, like, you know, the fibers like jute and cotton and so on, oil seeds, which they wanted because they, uh, they did not have vegetable sources of cooking oil. They used to use pig fat, lard, for cooking and they wanted vegetable sources. So all these things are documented 
in the economic history textbooks very clearly. So you have a fall in the area under food grains, relative fall. You have the fall in the per capita production of food grains, and you have a fall in the per capita availability. That is the food grains available for consumption after you allow for even imports of food grains from Burma, even after that you had fall. And the largest fall that took place was in the area which was colonized earliest, that is Bengal. The rest of India was colonized last. And of course, Punjab was one of the regions, uh, which is now in Pakistan, which was colonized uh, before Burma, but a century after Bengal was colonized. So the impact of these policies, you know, you can see very clearly was most adverse uh, impact in the areas colonized earliest. Uh, the per capita availability and consumption of food grains fell by 38% in Bengal in the interwar period. And it fell by 18% in Punjab. But even in Punjab, it declined. So this is the worst possible outcome. And I'm not even talking about the regular famines. I'm talking about the long-term fall in food grains availability in particular region, in particular times, that deepened into actual famine and enormous numbers of famine deaths. Culminating, of course, in the Great Bengal Famine. Uh, perhaps your students can look up the article I've written, uh, which came out only a couple of years ago in the EPW, uh, on the Holocaust in Bengal during the Second War from 1940, uh, in 1943-44, which is relatively recent history, which was again a completely government-made famine. It was the result of putting the cost allied military costs of pursuing the war on Japan entirely on the, primarily on the Indian uh, revenues. Right. And the question of the Bengal famine is, of course, very important. The, you know, three or four million people died in Bengal and uh, it was presided over by Winston Churchill. And he was, uh, he was like, well, Indians breed like rabbit. So, I mean, there's a lot of racism there and that's worth examining. Uh, but this, the question of declining food uh, availability and and food intake that you're talking about it raises the question of the importance of decolonization. So you said that no sovereign country would behave this way, where it came to the drain, where the British would keep the foreign exchange for themselves and uh, pay Indians. Uh, basically, Indians would pay for their own exports. We're paying for owner uh, for owner exports, which is bizarre. Uh, so so what does sovereignty and decolonization mean for this and for food consumption? Well. You know, there used to be a kind of a very ultra-left uh, slogan, Ye Azadi Juti Hai, which was put forward at the time of independence. And that is not true. Uh, political sovereignty made an enormous difference to India, Pakistan, today's Bangladesh, and so on. Because for the first time, this whole mechanism ceased to exist, whereby, you know, taxes were being used for uh, basically cheating your export goods producers, not paying them, and so on. And the uh, economic consequences of this dream is something I, for the people of colonized countries, because this was happening not only with us, it was happening with Netherlands vis-a-vis -vis the Javanese population, it was happening with Japan vis-a-vis -vis Korea, which had colonized, you know, so it's a, a uh, very widespread phenomenon which has not been addressed. The economic consequences, since we are talking to really students who have some background in economics, is that the earlier col colonial system basically meant they were operating surplus budgets. 
all right? And surplus budgets, for those of you who have any acquaintance with Keynesian macroeconomics, means there's a phenomenal income deflating effect on the population, all right? Which means that much more was being collected in taxes than was actually going back. Now, in a sovereign country like Pakistan is, or India is now, what happens when the peasants export some primary goods? Of course, this earns foreign exchange, let's say, in the US, all right? Again, taking my earlier example, supposing $1,000 worth of goods uh, is exported and the uh, importers in the US want to pay the exporters from Pakistan or India. Uh, in India, the rate of exchange is probably around 72 to a dollar now. So let's say 72,000 rupees are due to the exporters from India. Now what would happen is that, of course, he wouldn't, the exporters would not get dollars as dollars. But the Reserve Bank of India to which the dollars come would make a fresh issue of 72,000 rupees. It would pump that amount of liquidity into the system. Okay? Similarly in Pakistan. That is the local currency equivalent of the foreign earnings would be pumped into the economy. That was not happening in the colonial period. Whatever was earned, it was, there was no fresh addition to liquidity because what, were, what was being paid was out of budgetary resources which had already been collected from the people. That is how they were getting cheated. So this had a tremendously income deflating effect. You know, the Indian subcontinent was earning the second highest merchandise export surplus in the world, second only to the United States, between 1890 and 1928, for like four decades. United States had the highest, and we have all this data from the United Nations historical statistics. And uh, the Indian subcontinent, British India, was a long way behind the United States, but it was second in the entire world. Okay? And none of these earnings were paid out. And so there was a tremendous compression of demand within the colonized economy. And this has got reflected in a decline in the basic consumption level of the population. Now, one of the most important indices which I've been using for decades for measuring the consumption uh, level is a very simple one. It is the per capita availability of food grains. You know, food is a basic necessity. And in poor countries, South Asian countries, even as late as about 10 years ago, the cereals alone, food grains comprise cereals plus pulses. You know, what in uh, Hindi or Urdu, because chawal and dal or ya, gehu or dals, all right? Cereals plus pulses. Even if you leave out pulses, which are a source of vegetable protein, if you take cereals alone, look at food and agri uh, agriculture organization data, which is data for countries all over the world. You find in India, as late as 2005, 74% um, of the calorie in daily calorie intake of the average Indian was coming from cereals alone. Calorie intake is the energy intake, right? Measured in kilocalories per day. 75% of that from the cereal consumption alone. And if you look at protein intake, an even higher proportion was coming from cereals. That proportion has declined now, but it's still two-thirds. That is two-thirds of your daily energy 
and protein intake of the average Indian comes from cereals. So food trains, of which cereals is the major part, I think even in Pakistan, it would be more than 90% of food trains would be cereals alone. Yeah. And the remaining 10% or so would be the pulses. And a very important indicator of the nutritional standard of the population. Now, this compression of incomes and employment that you had from the operation of surplus budgets in the colonial period meant that people were getting poorer and poorer, the mass of the people. I don't mean the property elite. Of course, there's always an elite which collaborated with the rulers, with the British rulers. They were the landlords, they were the professional caste, minority of professionals who were doing quite well. You know, those who got a, uh, an education, could afford to get an education, and became professionals like lawyers, doctors, and so on. Uh, there were a tiny business class, uh, a modern business class, which grew in the subcontinent. There were the traders and so on who made a lot of profit. But leaving aside these classes, the property classes, you take the mass of the population, there was a very severe decline in their nutritional standard because there was a decline in their uh, the ability to purchase and consume the basic necessity of food drinks. And this mecha economic mechanism was also one which allowed the colonizers to divert more and more land and resources to the export crops that they wanted. Now, what happened with sovereignty after independence? I'll talk, talk only about the subcontinent because uh, this was where we had sovereign policies being followed for the longest period of time. From independence in 1947 in India and Pakistan to right up to the late 1980s in India. So this is quite a long period of time. You know, it is four decades. Am I right? 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. Yes, that, end of right. the 80s. Four decades. You had policies followed of delinking from the global market. Because after the Great Bengal Famine, which had taken place before the eyes of the leaders of the freedom struggle in the Indian subcontinent, they realized that, you know, continuing with the colonial pattern of international division of labor, in which we privilege supplying uh, foreigners first and did not look at the food availability of our own population, that had to be reversed. And that could only be done by cordoning off the Indian market from global trade, which did not mean that our trade went down. No, trade continued to grow. But there were selective measures put in place where you, know, you exported food grains only if you had a surplus over your own requirements. You did not export food grains, even if global prices were high, you would, would not allow food grains to be exported. As long as domestic demand was not satisfied, which was happening all the time in the colonial period. And of course, you know, the basic macroeconomic policies changed completely because from being deflationary, the macroeconomic policies which were followed over these 40 years were expansionary. That is, the whole of the budget was spent, being spent domestically. And what is more, people were not constrained by the idea that you had to have a balanced budget. Uh, the government deliberately engaged in some degree of deficit financing because as long as you have unutilized domestic capacity and as long as you have unemployment, engaging in deficit financing will not be economically dangerous. On the contrary, it will lead to a rise in the growth rate such that 
savings also will rise to finance the deficit that the government has undertaken. In other words, the Keynesian theory was being applied that as long as you have unutilized labor and uh, which is shows up in unemployment and underemployment, as long as you have excess capacity, it is quite safe to engage in a certain degree of deficit financing. So the Indian government in, under, in the Nehruvian period, and the Nehruvian period is right up to 1950 up to uh, until the end of the 80s. It does not end with Nehru's death. The same policies were being followed, followed an expansionary fiscal policy, which was a complete reversal of the colonial situation. Because there you, were, you had a surplus budget to an enormous extent, up to one third or even two fifths in some years of the budget was not being spent domestically at all, which had an income deflating, employing, unemployment raising impact. Now you have the exact opposite. So you find that during these four decades, the uh, rate of growth of employment kept ahead of the rate of growth of the labor force. So the employment situation was improving. Unemployment was going down. Open unemployment was going down. Underemployment was also going down. The 80s were particularly good in India. I do not know about Pakistan because inequality was not increasing. It was high, but it was not increasing right up to the uh, end of the uh, 1980s. And the food grains availability was going up. In the 50 years before independence, it has fallen from 200 kilograms per capita annual. In around 1900, it had fallen to only 137 kilograms per capita by 1946. That was our worst year for the whole of British India, inclusive of India, Pakistan, everything. 137 kilograms in 1946. And that is a level that not even uh, least developed countries have today. It is lower than that. You know. So quite apart from the famine in Bengal, over the entire subcontinent, there was a tremendous hunger. Okay. By the beginning of the 1990s, this had been raised from this uh, terrible low to around 183-84 kilograms, which was a major achievement, you know, as far as food security goes. But then all this started to be reversed with the inception of neoliberal policies 